the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. George Friedman has a great and important book out. He doesn't uh, have these books uh, except when he feels he has something really important to say. The Storm Before the Calm, very, very enticing title. America's Discord, The Coming Crisis of the 2020s, and The Triumph Beyond. Ooh, nice. George Friedman's book is up at DennisPrager.com, published by Doubleday. The Storm Before the Calm. So I, my first question to you is a, a, the, the breaking news item of the last the week. And that is the deal the U.S. signed with the Taliban. What is George Friedman's take? Well, this war has gone on a long time. The original purpose was to hunt down al-Qaeda, which is collaborating with the Afghan government, disrupt them. That was achieved. Once we did that, we decided to stay. And the mission crept up to making Afghanistan a democracy which was fairly insane. Uh, there was no real path to anything re- comparing to victory. So I would say that what has happened here is that as part of the Trump doctrine to reduce our exposure to our troops in the world, we have decided to uh, you know, fold our cards, won what we could, and leave. And unless we're planning to spend the next century there, that was a very good move. Hmm. So if uh, we leave and it, it, it provides echoes of our leaving south of Vietnam and there's a massacre of Afghans, women are removed from the public sphere, girls who go to school are shot you would still hold it was the right thing to do? Well, given that we're there, and that's when the girls are shot and women are oppressed, yes. An army is not a police force, and a police force is not a social worker or someone going for conversion. This is a heavily primitive Islamic country. Uh, It is a country that fought the British, fought the Russians, and wore them down. And... As much as we would like to make this a better world, uh, we need to face the fact that some places are quite happy the way they are. And even if they're not, no amount of American blood is going to change them. We got rid of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. They fretted, fled at a place called Tora Bora. And we weren't going to do better than that, even if we wanted to. So, look, in retrospect, I think a lot of people believe we should have simply uh, deposed the Taliban at the time and left. But, uh, of course, the—well, not of course. Let me ask you this. Do you believe 
that once we leave, the Taliban will stay peaceful? I don't think so. Uh, the Taliban is heavily fragmented. Uh, they fought civil wars with various groups before they took power. Uh, they fight with themselves. This is a violent country. So there is no path to stability in Afghanistan. And there can be simply using our troops to show our commitment to building a democratic society. Well, I have two children in the military, and I'm not particularly happy with them having that mission. They're not symbols. They're human beings. Okay. I, I was very interested to get your response. Turkey has now opened its border, another late-breaking development, to allow Syrian uh, refugees out into Europe. Is that Do I have that correct? Pretty much, yeah. And the reason Turkey is doing this is? Well, there was a deal between the Europeans and the Turks. The Syrians were swarming into Europe. Uh, there was all sorts of internal fighting over this. And the Europeans agreed that if the Turks would house them in Turkey, the Europeans would pay the price, pay the cost. Okay? Well, the Europeans never came through with the money. And at this moment in history, where the Turks are fighting the Syrians, as well as the Russians, and the Europeans are refusing to give them any help, Erdogan did something that was not unexpected. He said, okay, deal's off. You take care of the Syrian refugees, we won't, and proceeded to release them. Now the Europeans have to decide, either pay up or live with the problem. What will they do? Uh, they'll hold a meeting. The Europeans don't have any consensus as to what they should do. There are countries like Hungary that simply say, we're a Christian country, we're not going to let in Muslims to change our character. There are countries like Germany that are divided between those who don't think national character matters and those who believe that it does intensely. Europe is a divided, fragmented continent who's lost its second largest economy, the British, who had had enough. So they're not in the position to do anything. What the Turks really want is to see the Americans do something. And what they've asked for from the Americans are Patriot missiles. Now, the U.S. has a serious decision to make. They're asking for Patriot missiles so that we put our skin in the game on their side, their historic enemies. But doing that would also put us in a position of confronting the Russians. So we have to make a decision. Why, why do missiles, forgive me, why do missiles to Turkey confront Russians? Because those missiles, there's a fight going on. The Turks bought uh, S-400 Russian missiles. Uh, we didn't want them to. We said they should buy Patriot missiles. They bought them anyway. Now that they have a problem with the Russians, they want the Patriot missiles because... They're not sure the Russian missiles will work against Russian aircraft. Oh, so it's an economic confrontation with Russia, not a, not a military. Well, the Russians struck at Turkish positions, killing 30 uh, last week. And Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Well, uh, they were warning the Turks not to come in and threaten the Syrian regime. The Turks are historic enemies of the Assad regime. Uh, 
they are. Oh, okay, all right. Now, no, no, that, so that answers my question. The issue with Syria. I, I get it. So strengthening Turkey is weakening Syria. Syria is Russia's client. Well, Syria also is linked to Russia, and Russia and Syria are pressing on the Turkish border, where we still have troops, by the way, not all that weren't uh, taken out. So we're in a position here where they're pressing on the Turkish border. The Turkish, Turks, who have a pretty impressive army, struck back. The Russians came in with airstrikes, and Turkey, not to make a joke, went ballistic. Uh, they turned to the European, to NATO, and NATO basically made no commitment to help them. They're members of NATO. Uh, they then turned to the United States. Today, there was a meeting between the Defense Department and the State Department. State Department wanted to give them the defensive missiles. Defense Department, according to the press, uh, refused. Uh, the Defense Department does not want to commit without knowing what the end game is and how many forces they have. I still don't understand something. Why didn't Europe live up to its deal with Turkey and pay them to keep the Syrian refugees inside Turkey? Well, the best read I have is that since 2008, Europe has been in a financial crisis. We weren't talking about small bucks. This was 3 or $4 billion. And the Europeans, with some arrogance, felt that, well, the Turks are not going to dare mess with us because we're Europe. And it was easier politically for them not to pay the money. And they didn't. And now it's sort of coming back at them. But once again, it's falling on the Greeks because the first place they go to is Greece. And now these refugees are sitting in islands off Greece. And so far as we can tell, we've checked on this without any food, in the rain, and cold weather. It's not a pretty thing. And the Europeans either are going to make a move because the Turks are going to sit there and send more. How many Syrians are in Turkey? The estimate runs to about 3 million. Oh, my God. Well, this was during the middle of the intense crisis when the, the Syrians were just pouring in, if you remember, into Europe. And the Europeans didn't want any more. And they turned to the Turks to say, let them stay in camps in Turkey, and we will fund it. We will underwrite it. And they didn't uh, live up to the deal. So now about the worst time possible with all the other crises going, the Turks have basically said, look, we have a problem with the Russians. You're not going to help us. NATO is making speeches. Take the Syrians back. Wow. Let me ask you then, if, uh, if Russia did not back Assad, would that regime be dead? I suspect it would be. Uh, it has tremendous enemies inside of Syria. The family itself is split. And it's not even Russian power. The Russians don't have that much power there. It's the idea that the Russians will rush in more power if the regime is threatened. Yeah, okay. All right, so if it weren't for Russian protection, who, would, who do you think would be in charge of Syria if it weren't for Russia? Well, that's the problem. It would be the Sunnis. And the country is divided between the Shiite sect, the Alawites, which is Assad's, and the Sunnis. And the Sunnis have people who are 
decent businessmen wanted to make a living, and they had ISIS uh, embedded in them. So in a certain sense, the Russian position is we're saving the West from an ISIS-dominant state. That may be true, but it may not be true. But from Turkey's point of view, uh, it's been allied with Russia up to this point. The Russians have stabilized the regime. It's time for the Russians to get out. And remember, Turkey and Russia are historic enemies. They've fought 16 wars in the past centuries. Yeah, what 16 wars? <laughs> <laughs> so you're, the subtitle of your book, The Storm Before the Calm, the, has the, these words, The Coming Crisis of the 2020s. What's the coming crisis of the 2020s in a nutshell? Well, I'll call it the struggle between the industrial working class and their decline, and what I call the technocrats, the people who work at computer companies, at universities, that class. Uh, the working class was shattered uh, as exports to China increased. And maybe it had to be that way, but they were shattered. Right now, the average lower middle class person in the United States makes $35,000 a year. Take-home pay, maybe 26000 less in California. Uh, you can't buy a house on that. You can't live on that. We're talking about one quarter of America's population. When I was brought up, I was hardcore lower middle class. We had a house, a little one, a car, old one, went on a vacation, cheap one. So we had these things. These people have lost it. And when you take a look at a map of the election of 2016, you see that the Democrats carried the West Coast. The East Coast, as far down as North Carolina, but not including it. But between the Appalachians and the Rockies, they took only three states, New Mexico, Colorado, and Illinois. So this vast heartland of the United States rose up and elected Trump. And now we are into the second round. First, Trump not only rose up, but he broke the back of the establishment of the Republican Party, beating Jeb Bush was that. And now the establishment of the Democratic Party is being broken by an even more erratic and extreme man, Bernie Sanders, it looks like. Maybe he won't be. And we are seeing the center collapse. Well, this happened before, and we've seen worse times. I mean, the 1960s, the 82nd Airborne went into Detroit to put down the rising there. We had assassinations. We had huge riots outside of the Democratic Convention. And uh, we had a president who wasn't impeached. He just left office as a criminal. So the point I'm making is these things happen in America, and they happen with regularity about every 50 years. The entire system runs into an end point where it can no longer function. And as it runs into this end point, okay, very strange things start to happen politically, things that aren't expected. And a struggle goes on for around 10 years. In the 1970s, interest rates were at 18%. Unemployment was at 10%. Um, inflation rates were at 12%. And then a shift took place, symbolized by Ronald Reagan, who understood that the basic problem was 
the tax code penalized investment. Took that out, and suddenly we had a revolution in the United States. Well, we're far from that point yet, but coming down the road is going to be a very new model of America. And that is? Well, it's going to be a model of America that firstly has an institutional shift. The federal government changes every 80 years. We first had uh, the revolution, which created states and federal government. The Civil War changed the relationship between the states and the federal government. And World War II changed the relationship between the federal government and society. So you're talking about the great shift in American uh, federal and institutional life. You you began with... uh Let's see, the, uh, the, what was it, the forming of the United States, then the Civil War, then World War II, is that correct? That's, that's the preface, yes. Right, and now what? Well, I'll put it in a very simple way. The First Amendment guarantees the right to petition the government. Everybody talks about the right to speech and everything else. That's there, too, in the First Amendment. It is impossible for a citizen at this point to petition the government because the government is totally inaccessible to them. Along with being inaccessible to them, it's incomprehensible to them. What's happened is, in World War II, we turned government over to experts. And expertise is critical, you have to have it. But the expert knows the little thing he knows, and he doesn't see the whole. And what emerges, such as a healthcare bill, is a document that no one fully understands. And that when you go to that lady who is at the front desk and designed to take the slot, to take that, all that unhappiness, and you ask a question or you ask for an exception, you can't, because they are not empowered. No one is empowered to help you. So what was superb in World War II, created the Manhattan Project, defeated the Germans, defeated the Japanese, has now turned into this massive monster that takes control more and more of society, which would be okay if it did a good job. But it also violates the Constitution by denying you the right to petition the government. This is a small piece of it, but it's an essential piece of what's going wrong. And then, next story, of course, is the universities. Uh, The universities uh, were created to give knowledge and to give it to a wide range of people. Uh, What has happened today at the best universities is only a few hundred veterans of our wars have been admitted to the 35 best universities in the country. Harvard has an interesting question that they ask those people who are deciding on admitting someone. Is this the kind of person you'd like to room with? Is this the kind of person you'd like to have dinner with? Well, how likely is it that they're going to come back with a positive for a young woman who is pro-life and wants to start a pro-life movement at the herd? So we're back in the 1920s when getting into universities is extremely difficult. And all of this is funded by the federal government and student loans. These universities couldn't survive without the student loan program, wouldn't be able to raise tuition and so on. And we now have a $16 trillion debt that the federal government is going to have to cover, which is larger than the subprime loan crisis. 
So the universities, oddly enough, have emerged as the big problem. They exclude vast parts of American society. They inculcate many ideas, but at the heart of them is that they are smarter than everyone else, and they're funded in this by the federal government. This can't survive. These universities, I went to Cornell. It was great. I enjoyed it. Uh, I also went to CCNY. I learned just as much, didn't enjoy it as much. These people own huge areas of property in cities all over the country. They don't need them. They can finance themselves by selling it, renting it out, or whatever. The point is that we cannot sustain the university system any longer. The Democrats are proposing abolishing the debt of students. But the reason that they bought it up, that's the, one of the hearts of the problem. The place where you get educated has become a Ponzi scheme financially. God, is and that true? Oh, uh, I, I, I've no. <laughs> I mean, that alone recommends the book. By the way, why did you say the. Uh, uh, I may have misheard or you misspoke. Why did you say the debt was with regard to student debt for college? Uh, best guess is sixteen trillion. It's it's hard to believe. I, I I mean, what is the American? What is the U.S. debt? Uh, that's total debt. The U.S. debt is much higher. I'm not sure what it is, but sixteen trillion is about the largest single item of debt we have. University funding. I mean. It, Look, one trillion would be astounding. This is, uh, it's hard to believe. Does that mean all tuition or just debt? Well, the tuition is you borrow money to pay off your tuition. Right. But if you didn't borrow the money, is it still considered part of that number? Or it's Uh, truly only borrowed debt? This is only borrowed debt. The amount we pay is more. One person came over to Elizabeth Warren. It was interesting. He said, look, since my kid was born, every day, every week, I deposited money into her tuition fund. Uh, she went to university on that money that I saved. Now, you're saying that I was a chump saving any money uh, because you won't give me back the money that I spent. She said, of course you're not going to give you back the money you spent. This is canceling the debt of the students who can't pay it back. Now, think about the entire relationship between that man, his values, his work, okay? And the idea that is going forward that all of this debt that has been occurred uh, really should be handled by the federal government. But more than that, also think about the universities, that heedlessly raised tuition, allowed professors to work for six hours a week. I was a professor. I worked six hours a week. Best part-time job I ever had. Who permitted this kind of squandering waste. Looked down on the rest of society, right? All of it funded by a federal government that essentially uh, took its bearing from experts drawn from academia. Look, you know, look, uh, you don't, you know, you're talking to the convinced on the universities, I, uh, they're, they're the terror, they're terror, they're doing terrible things to our society. 
But there's well, parts of the values they teach. Yeah, no, no, I know. I mean, economically, yes, economically, not just the values. Yes, that's that they're they're a destructive force. That it's it's very sad. Let me let me quickly get to another world item and remind everybody about your book, which is up at DennisPrager.com, The Storm Before the Calm. Uh, the uh, Israeli elections, the fourth one in, in how long? This is the fourth in how long? I think six, seven months. Okay, all right. So uh, certainly a year. So uh, the, in the final analysis, does it matter if it's Netanyahu or Gantz? I don't think it matters very much except on one issue. The question of whether Israel is going to be a religiously ruled society or secularly ruled society. Now, that overstates it. It makes it too stark. But there's a lot of, you know, Netanyahu took a lot of his support from the religious uh, community. Uh, That has enraged a whole part of Israeli society. The kind of division they're having, interestingly, is the kind of division that's being repeated all over the world in some form or another. Israel, which was once a very united country, can't pick a prime minister. It's a much more powerful country than it was when Netanyahu came into power. He's done that. But it also created this division in the country that hasn't really been seen since the founding of Israel. Hmm. Well, so, uh, by the way, just, just for the record for my listeners, uh, I am a religious Jew, but I do not like the religious parties. I think that they hurt uh, Israel and they hurt religion. The uh, just uh, very I I I am on board with the secularists in Israel, in opposition to the religious parties, and I am religious. I, I'm not alone, but I'm obviously in a minority in that way. But uh, it's it is not given in Israel's case. It is not given Judaism a good name. Let's put it that way. And uh, and obviously in Iran, where I've, it's not even comparable, but. It's worth noting, I, my sense is that Iran has produced more atheists in one generation than any country in the history of the world. That's how the, 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 the backlash against uh, Islam in that society. All right, I want to thank you. The, star, the storm before the calm. I hope many of my listeners read this. America's Discord, the coming crisis of the 2020s, and the triumph beyond. And how do people get a, a sample of your uh, work at uh, Geopolitical Futures? Come to www.geopoliticalfutures.com. There are a lot of free things. Terrific. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.